This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Gwen. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. And we are ready to be done with remote recording. We have I been doing it you, for months. We are beyond. Months. We've been doing this it is... longer than we've done yes. it the other way. Oh my God. Yes. I, we are so sick of recording out of our homes. It's actually a lot more work. You've heard us bitch about it before. We're not so going to bitch about it too much now. Everybody say a prayer. Say a prayer that nothing else happens and that we can from here on out never have to do remote recording unless it's for a special occasion that we want uh-huh. to. Like we're going to go yeah. do it remote from like that time we did it remote from GayCon or whatever. It was called BentCon. It was not called GayCon. Well, it, it doesn't exist gay anymore. So I'm allowed to call it whatever I want to call it gay now. Con. So. <laughs> Speaking of which, happy Pride Month, Eric Shaw Quinn. This is our happy first Pride, Pride Month episode. Um, I'm very, are you proud, Christopher? I'm very proud. I'm very, Good very proud. I'm very proud that we have an openly gay cabinet secretary. I think for the first time in history, Pete Buttigieg is our right? secretary of transportation. And also I think one that's of the great. smartest men. God, he I is love so him. sexy, smart. Yes. Yes, he is. Nothing He's smarter, He's smart. than, nothing sexier than smart. Yeah, well, you know, that's in your opinion. Um, but that's great. Happy Pride to uh, Secretary of Transportation, uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg. Did you have the impression that I was expressing somebody else's opinions? No, yeah, no. No, you never do. You usually express, You usually stick straight to your own, pardon the I, pun. Really, the only ones I feel qualified to address... Yeah. Since everybody else is wrong, usually. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it, Eric Shawquen. Listen, since yes, it's Pride Month. Linda. And we have we haven't mentioned it in a while, so I'm gonna mention it here. We do a lot of shows talking about the unsolved murder of William Arnold Newton. We've done interviews with the LAPD homicide detective who's inherited the case. We recently did an interview with documentarian Rachel Mason, and we have an email address that is set up. For your recollections, your tips, we are working in cooperation with law enforcement on this. That address is William Newton Investigation at gmail.com. William Newton was a gay man. He was a gay porn performer under the name of Billy London. His murder has gone unsolved for 30 years now. And uh, if you are remotely interested in the case or if it triggers any of your memories, I think the last big social media push we did around it, and this was in conjunction with Rachel Mason's interview, we asked people who were in West Hollywood or Hollywood around October 28th, 1990, specifically to attend the Halloween Street Festival, if they could get in touch with us, if they had pictures from that time 
uh, if they had memories of visiting Los Angeles or specifically Boys Town in West Hollywood, the area around Santa Monica Boulevard and San Vicente, to get in touch with us. But those episodes are all there. The email address remains active. And we are, it is Pride Month, and we are talking about the murder of a gay man that has gone unsolved for decades. So, those episodes in which we discuss the Billy Newton murder are episode 37, 48, 60, 63, and the last one we did was episode 74, which included the interview with Rachel Mason that I mentioned earlier. Excellent. Excellent. Anything you'd like to add, Eric Shawquin, to my Billy Newton spiel? No, I just, I, I guess the point is, if you have those photos, like, have a look at them. I don't know that you just need to send us all of your photos from that time, but if you were on the street or whatever and have any, look at your photos and see what you might have and see if it might include something that you think would be appropriate. What we're mostly interested in trying to find is pictures of Billy walking out of rage or on the street with somebody else after he mm-hmm. leaves on the 28th, right? The evening of Sunday, October 28th. Right. Yes. We think he walked home, and so if he went home in the company of somebody else, who was it? So that's really mm-hmm. the key time. But we're looking for pictures of Billy on the street in company with other people. If you're not certain or whatever, we so- totally get that. But I just think... You know, like, do a little editing. Do a little detective work for us mm-hmm. and see if you can't bring us down. If you anything looks suspicious, by all means, send it to us. Um, yeah, hell, if you see Jeffrey Dahmer on the streets of West Hollywood in the background in one of your pictures, send it. Because that would prove that he was here, which we can't do at this point. But the other thing we're really looking for is Billy in the company of anybody, particularly on that walk. Because that's the last minute he was ever seen. Yeah. And and there's now, I don't know if debate is the right word for it, there was previously the belief that he left Rage Nightclub alone on the evening, I believe it was Sunday, October 28th, whatever the Sunday of that week was. We know it was right. a Sunday night. Uh, we've heard from uh, a potential eyewitness who says that he saw Billy leave Rage Nightclub that evening. It was still light out. In the presence of a man who, if he was not Jeffrey Dahmer, bore a striking resemblance to Jeffrey Dahmer. And so that has opened up a new avenue of discussion, at least, if not flat out investigation, into whether or not Billy left was last seen alive in the company of someone who has not been definitively identified. So that's sort it's I've, things are ongoing, you know, nothing we can discuss yet. Um, but. I think we keep bringing that up to emphasize that that story g- helped us get the attention of the LAPD homicide department. Like, don't undervalue your. And they have stayed in to touch with us. I mean, not yes. only did it get their attention, but they are still in touch. We can't report yes. everything that we have heard back from them, but it is ongoing, and they have remained in touch with us. And that is thanks to you and your contributions and your responding and sending things into the tip line. So we can't overestimate that, and we continue to be impressed with their willingness to be in touch with us about this case. And they is Detective John Lamberti, who was interviewed in episode 63. Yes. That's called The Murder of William Newton, Part 3, The LAPD Speaks. 
Uh, so that is there for you to listen to as well. And um, we have just been encouraged by the amount of interest we've been able to generate. There was really not much we could find online about this case when we started this discussion. A few articles from 2005 when the detective Wendy Barrett tried to really reinvigorate the investigation. And then after that, it petered out and we received word that uh, Billy's father, who had been his advocate for many years, had passed away. So um, I think I'm reminded of a recent true crime TV club that we did. It's not an exact match for what I'm about to say, but it was your uh, serving up a documentary about the murder of Kitty Genovese and sort of right. unspinning a lot of the myths that had been told about that case. And one of the things that you quoted at the documentary as having saying is that the more witnesses there are to something, in this case a violent attack, uh, in Kitty's case I should say, the less likely people are to have called the police because they all assume somebody else called the police. And so the more people might have witnessed Billy in the company of a stranger the night before his remains were discovered in a dumpster, the less likely they were to come forward because they might have assumed somebody, well, surely somebody else, maybe somebody who knew Billy better, talked to them and told this story. So don't assume is what we're saying. Right, because you know what happens when you assume. You make an ass <laughs> out of you and me. And uh, justice for Billy is long overdue. Okay, moving on from Billy, we did say, and uh, it's going to be the case, it's it's probably a morbid way to celebrate Crime Month, but we are going to be talking about cases this month uh, in which the victims were members of the LGBT community. This is one, what we're going to talk about today. We returned to YouTube, uh, to the Real Stories YouTube channel. This is an episode with many titles. It has two oh, in its YouTube listing. Just amazing. It is. And then once you start watching, it has yet another one. It just never stops having titles. Murder in Cape Town. Who killed Bruno Braun is the title you will find it on YouTube. That's, with. How, that's the best way to look it up on YouTube. And if you haven't seen it, you can pause it now and uh, watch it for yourself and then go through it with us. Or you can skip over that and follow the Cindy Conforti rule and just listen to us tell you the story. But spoiler alert, we're going to tell the whole story. So yeah, that's the way we always do it. But you know, we keep hoping that there's new people every week. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we always give that sort of book club introduction because it is a club. True crime TV club right. is in fact you're in the club. a club. You're in a club. If you're listening, you're in the club. So tough shit. There's no leaving. Nobody leaves the club. That's once right. they no one gets out of the club. And the first rule of true crime uh, TV club is everybody talks about true crime TV club. Like, <laughs> yes, it is not a secret club. <laughs> Please tell talk everyone. About it. Yes. Tell everyone that, you know, pe tell people you don't know. We don't care. Just tell people. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Let's then. go back in time to February 7th, 2012, Cape Town, South Africa. A housekeeper working for a gentleman named Bruno Braun arrives for work and discovers a terrible mess inside the granny flat. This was my first experience with that phrase. I guess that must be a South African term for a mother-in-law flat or an in-law uh -huh. flat. The granny flat attached to Bruno's always tidy and well-kept home is a mess, which is very out of character for Bruno. And inside, she discovers the corpse of her boss, Bruno Braun, with a green carpet thrown over his head. We will get more details about the crime scene and the murder later, but this special begins with that place, as they often do, and then sidesteps into a history 
of Bruno's uh, relationship to the gay community in Cape Town, South and Africa. It's a very interesting life. He actually seems yeah. to have had a pretty interesting life. He started a club there called the Bronx, which was somewhat of a play on his last name. Uh, people who are interviewed, there's a gentleman named Ian McCann, who I think... Well, he and his partner did. He and his partner, Jono, yes. started this club and became quite the success with it. And they interview a gentleman named Ian McCann, who sort of comes across not quite as a host, but as somebody like if we were gay in South Africa, we might know who he is because there's no personal connection to the case revealed. But he seems very well versed on the community there and the history of the community and and the case in general. But yes, um, this club, the Bronx, is credited as having really given rise to the Greenpoint Village area, which is the city's gay neighborhood they keep referring, they also refer to it by the name of the local street, which is, I think, Dewantekant, uh, W-A-T-E-R-K-A-N-T. Um, he started this club with his partner, Jono, as you said, and then Jono dies. And they don't say how, or did I miss it? No, they really don't. And it's been like, they, uh, it, had been a, it had been a fair amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, since yeah. the, the time of his murder, and there's a fair amount of time passes since Jono's death, but they were very much in it together. They were sort of yin to yang, like he was all about the hosting part, and Jono was about the business side of things. And it it really, like, I, I got the impression that you couldn't underestimate the impact of this club. It became sort of the cornerstone on mm-hmm. which an entire community was built. First, they opened, then clubs around them opened, then gay people moved into, bought into the neighborhood and gentrified, then the property values shot up. And I mean, it really transformed this area and it really began with this club. So they were mm-hmm. central to the, the whole evolution of this um, this particular area. And I got the also got the impression this sort of coming out part of South Africa is a pretty repressive country mm-hmm. until relatively recently and so i guess the coming out was a part of that um liberation after the um africans the white rule africans were finally overwhelmed and um mandela and that world began to be a part of the history of the country uh, i don't know that i don't know that history but i, I don't either that kind i had that kind of impression that it was a part of the country coming out of the closet too, it becoming less and less of a deal. Although at the time the club opened, apparently it was still, you went to the clubs because that's where you right. saw other gay people. You were, right. it wasn't cool to be out at work and stuff. Right. Or as cool as it apparently is now. And I will say this, and I'm not faulting the documentary for this. This is made by a South African production company for what seems like a South African audience. So there isn't necessarily an address of the history that we maybe perhaps needed as two American guys watching this special. YouTube is kind of a global marketplace, so I, I'm not going to fault it for that. Yeah, it's, there was it's a like, lot. There were some real. There were some some moments of clarity that you're. I think that's well observed, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best 
to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So the story up until now is essentially, I think it was sometime around 2000, Bruno and his partner Jono opened this pioneering gay club in this neighborhood. Jono dies not too long after of a cause they don't make clear to us. Bruno kind of retreats and he doesn't take as good a care of the club as maybe he did when Jono was alive. They say toilets are not being repaired. It's sort of going downhill. Two close friends of Bruno are, are really the only major interviews um, in the piece. And, that, and one of them is, I need to get their names correctly here, Dawid Humane uh, and Ari Nitsen, both of whom worked at the club. Dawid, or maybe it's David, and it's just spelled with a W. Again, my no. ignorance. No, it's not. It's Dawid. Dawid. Or Dawid. I, or Dawid. I think they pronounced it Dawid. But yeah, it's Dawid. not David. He was the DJ at the club. Ari, I think, I'm not, I'm not sure if they're entirely clear on what he did professionally, but they were close to Bruno and knew what was going on with him, and they were also close and connected to the club. Sweet boys, but not the buzz-spoken people no. um, that I've run across. It was challenging to mm-hmm. uh, get information from them. I don't know that either of them ever managed to say a complete sentence during the course of the entire show. They would stop in the middle of a thought and go somewhere else and get tongue tied. Yeah. It was very off the cuff. Mm-hmm. It was, there was a raw feeling to all of it. There was, very a, much. there was a sense that, and I'm not to spoil anything too much, but the Ari and Dawid are not ultimately happy with how the investigation shook out and where we're headed. And I'm not entirely clear on what they wanted <laughs> instead. And we'll get there, but it's not, it's not entirely clear to me. Okay. Because I'm not very clear on anything they actually said. Like right. they, they were not very clear people. They were not mm-hmm. clear headed people. And you know, it's not everybody's thing, public speaking. So I don't fault them, but it was a challenging aspect of this particular show. Right. Uh, Bruno, in his grief, strikes up a sexual relationship with a gentleman named John Kutza, who was working as a bouncer at the club, and he is described as a rough type. According to Bruno's friends, they have, and I'm quoting now, a kinky, fetish-oriented sexual relationship and John never spends the night. Okay. It was um, just sex. It was just sex and work. And apparently, apparently, though we find it out later, it only took place in the granny flat because he wouldn't even have him in his bed. That, But highlight that for me. So is this Bruno doesn't want John in his bed or John won't go in his bed? That I, I don't know that on. they made the distinction. My thought was because... Bruno was depicted as being incredibly um, OCD about the the way in which the, the condition of the house, that it mm-hmm. was about not wanting him trashing the house. So mm-hmm. he was fine to use the granny flat, um, but he wouldn't let him in the house. He wouldn't let him mm-hmm. in the bed. Because I don't know that that... I mean, John may have refused to go in there, but I didn't have that sense of it. Okay. In the weeks leading up to Bruno's murder, he tells his friends that John is harassing him for money, that he's literally showing up at the house unannounced, he's causing trouble, he's doing things to lure 
uh, Bruno outside to investigate noises, and then there's John yelling at him about money. It's, the situation sounded scary and obvious, <laughs> given what's about yes. to happen. Um, on February 7th, 2012, that's when Bruno's housekeeper discovers his body. Uh, we're then given a lot more details of the crime scene. There are no signs of forced entry, and it's a very secure home. It's set back from the street behind a gate. When the housekeeper and law enforcement after her enter, the sitting room and kitchen are immaculate, but on the patio outside of the granny flat, they find cigarette butts. Inside the granny flat, a crime scene is waiting for them. They quickly discover the lap- his laptop, cell phone, and BMW are all missing. Bruno's body, and I want to make a point about this because it triggered a memory of another case that I actually saw, and I think it even sort of gets back to the Billy Newton case that we talked about at the top of the show. His face is covered in a rug, and then underneath the rug is a bloody towel that was used to cover his face. They later say he was smothered by the towel, but they also say he died of strangulation. And I don't know if the I don't know if strangulation also applies to smothering. I thought they were actually different. Well, I think they said he died of suffocation. Asphyxiation. Okay. Asphyxiation. Right. And and he was strangled as well, but they somebody put something over his face and um and yeah, and suffocated him. His wrists have been bound with a leather belt. His legs are heavily bruised, and there are severe carpet burns on his knees. And as we just discussed, there was evidence that he had been strangled. The reason I think this is what a murder looks like when someone didn't plan it. This is what a murder looks like when it's frenzied and last minute, and there's some degree of regret on the part of the killer. And when we were first starting to talk about the Billy Newton case, I was sort of looking at any sort of uh, murders of gay men from around that time period that had not been connected up to a serial killer. And I found this case out of, I think it was Largo, Florida. I'm blanking on the gentleman's name, but I'll find out what it was. And it was a murder that where the crime scene looked almost exactly like this. Half-assed restraints, cover right. up the victim at the last minute, and a rapid flight from the crime scene. And it was later determined that the the guilty person went home drunk with the guy had anxiety about his sexuality at the moment the advance was made he struck but it wasn't premeditated and it wasn't really planned it's important to point out because so many people assume that's the case in the billy newton murder that we always talk about that he went home with the wrong guy that everything we have been able to determine and the police have been able to determine that they've talked about publicly is that it was methodically planned Billy Absolutely. was surgically dismembered. His body parts were deposited in a dumpster in pieces. We've still not recovered all of the body. So I just, I always say that because I don't like it when Billy, people say, oh, he went home with the wrong guy, you know, as a sort of shortcut for, well, I mean, you know, he did, but he went right. home with somebody who was planning to kill him. Like right. it wasn't, it was not a crime of opportunity. It was planned. Exactly. It was a very careful, methodically planned murder. There was nothing accidental about Billy's murder. So putting all that out there, let's go back to the murder of Bruno Braun and what that might say about it. Um, The police, and I think this is where some condensation happens in the documentary, but the police arrest four suspects. John, the obvious choice, the man he was sexually involved with who'd been harassing him about money. A gentleman named Ferez Ali. Another gentleman named Ahmed Talifa and Kurta Rispi. 
Curta quickly turns state witness and says he works for a security company run by John's mother. I think it was John's mother, right? Yes. And that all he did that night was drive John to a place where he asked to be dropped off. And where he asked to be dropped off was actually one street down from where Bruno lived. And Curta says he found some stairs. I guess there were a public set of stairs that went up the hill to John Street. He left. He doesn't know anything about anything else. And he found out about the death of Bruno the next day. Um, and he says that Cuda's story was that he and Bruno had had a falling out and he needed to go and collect some of his belongings from Bruno's house. Right. Cuda is released on bail. And according to Bruno's friends, he walks around town acting like he's got no care in the world. Uh, they see him at the grocery store. He's nods, whatever. Like he does not seem affected by the fact that he is uh, being charged with the murder of his lover. Um, Kuzda, excuse me, his defense is to frame the other two guys who have been accused, Ferez and Akman. They, in turn, accuse him. We go into the trial where the, the nature of their accusations against each other are spelled out in more detail. Right. It begins in October 2013, and the state basically argues this. Kuzda had to pay off a drug debt, and he went to Bruno's house to get the money. Uh uh, Kurt Arusby, as we said previously, testifies for the state that Kuzda asked him to be dropped off on that street below, as I just described. He says that was around 11 p.m. at night. A neighbor of Bruno's testifies that she heard someone calling out for help, and God, this detail really freaked me out. Um, but when she calls back, someone says, everything's fine. Everything's I fine, really, ma'am. Everything's fine, <laughs> Like, that... Having heard this, if I'm calling out for someone specifically to see if they're okay, I'm going to now demand to hear their voice in response or else I'm going to call the cops. Is that the response you had when you heard this detail? Because, like, how many times did you do that? Is everything okay? And so a stranger calls back and says, yeah, it's great. Don't worry about it. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, it, the, thing that I, the thing that I thought of in that moment is that's when the suffocation happened. Oh, God. Yeah. That he was trying to keep him quiet and he ended up killing him. Mm, yes, because as I was saying, this was not a planned murder. I think, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and so my thought was that her calling out to him, and I don't falter for it, but that that's what killed him. Yeah. Oh God. Wow. Because when he and when because when in order to keep him quiet, he had to suffocate him. Oh my God. He didn't plan to suffocate him, but that that was the the inciting incident that actually called him. Oh my God. That was what I thought of when I heard that detail. Yeah. That's so, I think you're right. That's horrible, but I think, yeah. Oh. Um, The neighbor also testifies that she sees a white man matching Kuzda's description talking on his cell phone outside of the granny flat. Then the other men arrive, um, Ferez and Akman. Then she hears Bruno's BMW peeling off a half hour later, presumably driven by these three men, although she does not see them in the car. Then there's the medical forensic evidence, and that damns uh, Kuzda. His DNA is found under Bruno's fingernails and on the leather belt binding the dead man's hand and the towel. This is when they said the towel that had been used to suffocate him, and I was like, wasn't he strangled? Like... I think, I think he was strangled, but I think yeah. that suffocation was ultimately the cause of death. The cause of death, yeah. Uh, Bruno's friend then tells a story that chilled my blood, which is that they're all at the courthouse at the trial, 
Kuz is out on bail, right? So he's walking around. And mm-hmm. they pile into this elevator, and the doors are closing, and it's packed full. And here comes Kuzda. And this guy, not the friend, says, the elevator, the lift is full. You should take the next one. And Kuzda pushes his way in to this elevator full of the friends of the guy that he's accused of murdering. Like a fuck you. Like you're not going to tell me. I'm not a, I won't be judged by any. It was like, wow, that is some chutzpah on that one. Yeah. I even thought that they said that, and maybe it was just my hearing of it, that he pulled the guy out of the elevator who said Mm. the elevator was full and took his place. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. This is, he's, this is a serious asshole. Yeah, serious, serious asshole. Um, okay, and this is when we get into the part, the trial drag, I'm sorry, I was jumping too far ahead because there's something I really want to talk about. Um, uh, he's also, Kusa is so disruptive during the testimony in court of one of Bruno's friends that the judge reprimands him and basically tells him to shut up and stop laughing. He's laughing yes. during the guy's testimony as if, who does this And this guy is the he's... one, this is the one I was talking about earlier who wasn't very good at expressing himself. Like, mm-hmm. I can see how he would easily get rattled on the stand and how a bully type like Kusa mm-hmm. would have taken advantage of that. Right, Totally. The trial drags on until 2014 because uh, Kuzda and the other accused are using health excuses or claiming poor health or whatever. He can shove his way into an elevator, but apparently he's too sick to show up for court. Um, but they are all found guilty, and um, he gets life. I'm sorry, that's not true. They are not all found guilty. Kuzda is found guilty and gets life, and his two co-conspirators are acquitted. Okay. So this is where we get into the friends start to say they're not happy with the judgment, the the verdict, I should say. They think more went on. They say Bruno was hiding a lot of cash in his house that he had referenced. But I'm not clear what they're unhappy about. Like, Kusa is in jail. Are they implying that the co-conspirators had more to do with this? Are they trying to, did you, what did you hear? Because I was just stumped. I I kept waiting for some explanation of who the co-conspirators were and yes. what they were doing there in the first place. There yeah. never was one. So that was mm-hmm. very confusing. The thing that they seemed, the note that all of those kind of rattled friends seemed to keep coming back to was that they thought there was a lot of money involved. Mm-hmm. That, that, Stealing the BMW and the phone and the laptop were bullshit uh, cover excuses for a much bigger robbery Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that had taken place. That they actually went themselves to the house to try and find the money, which they said was not there. Apparently he had, at New Year's, which would have been very shortly, a month before this, he had $80,000 in the house that Mm -hmm. they knew of. And they were unable to find it and that there was plenty of money. There was even that whole story about there's apparently something that happens in South Africa. Again, I'm not familiar with the culture, um, but like people have drive in storage unit things where they go and just put their cash so that it's hidden from the government so that it can't be taxed. And that Mm -hmm. at some point that he had almost a million dollars in his drive-up safe deposit box, whatever mm-hmm. thing, 
Um, and they weren't sure how much was still there. And there was a great deal. Like they seemed really con- like interested in where was all the money. Mm-hmm. They felt like there was a lot more money than, than had been discovered and that they were calling it that it was definitely a murder and they were glad that he was convicted of that. But there was also a question of where had all this money gone? <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So the closing note of this, and it's one of the shorter pieces that we've ever done for True Crime TV Club. It's about a half hour, twenty five minutes. Is that? Yeah, it was. It was fairly brief, and um, uh, and not as conclusive as I would have liked. I would have. I no. would have liked to have had a more sort of a better understanding of the crime itself. What you got really was a more of a a depiction of people's feelings around the crime, the feelings of the people who were affected by the crime, which is certainly significant. I don't think that's anything to be uh, sneezed at, but I was not as clear. I didn't come away with a a clear understanding of the crime and its prosecution. And but we returned at the end to this gentleman, Ian McCann, who is probably Google because it seems like he's probably a South African gay journalist of some. note. Maybe so. Well, and and this is the club owner. And also a club owner, right? Was he? I didn't know if he was. I oh, missed, yeah. I missed he that. said okay. that he was inspired by Bruno and... Okay, and there you go. There you go. Right. To do what they did. Yeah. And so his final note is not so much about the crime. It's about the fact that when they buried Bruno, the younger members of the gay community in Cape Town didn't come out for his funeral that they didn't pay tribute to him the way Ian felt they should have given his contributions to their community he really as you said at the beginning he helped form the it was Cape the Town gay community it yeah. was the linchpin of the community that they'd all come to um, understand and there was very little you know awareness of that mm-hmm. and I think that's that hit a chord with me. I don't know if it hit a chord with you. I think no. I think yeah. it's a really it's a really significant point. We're at a really interesting time in our history as a community there apparently and here as well where we've made some pretty major strides. There's it's not all done and mm-hmm. it's and it's there is not a a lasting record or a veneration of the record of sacrifice that was made in order to get there. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, I look at something like um, the uh, historical documentation um, and the reverence around the March on Washington, where mm-hmm. uh, Martin Luther King made his I Have a Dream speech. Um, that 
that doesn't, we don't really necessarily have that kind of reverence in our own community for our own history. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is more significant than maybe it would seem on the surface. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's good that things are better, but understanding why things are better is also important too. And I would hope that there would be more of that. The media has not done a good job. The media does a terrible job. In fact, Mm -hmm. like several years ago was the anniversary of Woodstock and the anniversary of um, Stonewall are the same year. Mm. Like they happened the same summer. Mm -hmm. And there was enormous celebration and a movie about the... um, the, the the Woodstock about Woodstock mm-hmm. and less you know not nearly the same with and and the only one that anybody made the community reacted to with anger and mm-hmm. um, rejection Division. and my yeah. attitude was my attitude was oh so let's go to the other movie about mm-hmm. gay civil rights that got made this year oh there weren't any well you know well mm-hmm. I I mm-hmm. just think that that kind of that. I would hate for us to become divided about who gets full credit and forget our history in the process. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think, you know, the thing that it was very important to me in the beginning. And I if they were starting this club in Cape Town in 2000, that was I've never been to Cape Town and their club wasn't about me. But I came out 96, 97 and the bars were the only option for socializing. Yes. The internet was still rudimentary and limited. We were in America online chat rooms. We didn't have smartphones. We weren't meeting people in that way. If you wanted to find other LGBT people, you had to go to a bar. And there is an intersection to this day in the French Quarter in New Orleans, Bourbon and St. Anne. Oz is on one side. The Bourbon Pub and Parade is on the other. And that was where my friends took me. It was like 18-ish, you know, <laughs> it was 18. Yeah. But that was, and when I walked through those doors, while there were a lot of problems waiting for me there, and it wasn't um, a commune by any stretch of the imagination, that was where I felt comfortable. That was where I could kiss other boys. That was where I could finally meet other men to have sex with. That was where I could be myself for the first time ever. And I think when they were talking about how formative that one nightclub was to that community, I got it. Like, I totally understood it. And when we talk about Stonewall, we're talking about a bar that got invaded. We're talking about a space that seemed safe, although it was they were being harassed there repeatedly by everyone from the mafia to the cops. You know, that intrusion, those intrusions are what ultimately became a flashpoint for gay civil rights. And I think we have to... W- the corona and I, I haven't been a bar goer for years. I don't even drink anymore. So no, it's not and like I mean, I'm and about, that's, you know, and that's part of the problem. I mean, it is now you can show your affection for your boyfriend. I mean, Pete Buttigieg and Chastain, I, I assumed, you know, hugged at the, uh, yeah, hugged and kissed at the inauguration. Like, I, I mm-hmm. don't think that that that's not a, you don't need to go into a dark, quiet place to be able to express yourself now it's no, right. maybe not fully accepted but you the, it is less of a strange thing and it isn't career destroying it isn't right. the end of your life to kiss your boyfriend in public it is maybe you know not accepted by everybody but it isn't the end of the world and that moves us away from remembering 
what the deal is. Like one of the big fights about the whole um, Woodstock, uh, Woodstock, uh, look at me doing it. Stonewall riot thing was who threw the brick through the window, right? Mm -hmm. Who threw the brick through the window? There were no windows. Mm -hmm. There Mm -hmm. were no windows. You couldn't have a window in a gay bar. People went there to hide. That's, mm-hmm. That shows such a complete misunderstanding. And yet we're fighting about who gets credit for throwing the brick when, in fact, there was no window to throw a brick through in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there is now, but like now is not the same thing as then. There weren't windows in gay bars. In fact, in, in Los Angeles, the entrances to all the gay bars were in the alley. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You didn't come in from the, the front of the street because you couldn't be seen coming in or going out. So you came in through the alley. All the gay bars in West Hollywood and a lot of the gay bars, Hyde and other places like that. Hyde is the, the former scene, uh, scene of, uh, oh, what was it called? Numbers. Numbers. Yes, yes. The Huster Bar. That was the, you know, the entrance is in the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The entrance is in that parking lot in the back. Like that's where people came and went. Mm-hmm. Um, in those days. So we don't have any recollection of that. Our memory of that is lost right. because we can go through the front door now. We think we can go through the front door now because there's a window now. We think there was a window to throw a brick through then. And there simply wasn't. Mm-hmm. And we need to respect the people who joined the fight and stood up for this and gave us the help us to earn the rights that we got. But it didn't start with a Supreme Court battle over the right to get married. It started with stop harassing me in much the same way that we've seen this last summer of the Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter movement saying that's enough. Right. You know, that's enough. Like Mm -hmm. nobody is talking about big picture stuff. We're talking about I I have the right to exist. I have right. the right to live my life. I need I have the right to proceed down the street without being terrified mm-hmm. that somebody is going to kill me. It is a very, you know, those are the kinds of struggles that really are the foundation on which the much bigger and higher flown ideals are based and it's easy to forget them. And I think that's what the the point they were trying to make. It was the thing that was the most moving to me mm-hmm. about the show was that they were saying this guy was, you know, made this huge change in this community. And this is the sort of, you know, this is his exit. Right. Kind of unheralded, unglamorous, tawdry little murder with some rough trade trick. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody really acknowledging who he had been mm-hmm. um, in life yeah. um, to all of the people, probably because they just simply didn't know. Right. Yeah. I one of the things that we taught you you hit on it no longer being career destroying to be openly gay and I think that's yeah. one of the reasons we have gone back to the Billy Newton murder because we can talk about it in a time when it isn't and we have the sense and maybe it's somewhat borne out by what we found that people were not very forthcoming with the police because it could have destroyed their careers. Talking about who else might have been in the bar with Billy could have destroyed that person's career if they were innocent. People it was wouldn't 1990. say who was there. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I it mean, was yeah. Not, it was not a 100% sort of guarantee. When I wrote Say Uncle, part of what inspired me was gay people were having their actual children mm-hmm. taken away from them in court. That was okay. 
Right. You could naturally parent a child and have the child taken away from you because you were a gay person. Mm-hmm. As recently as within the lifespan of the time of the writing of Say Uncle, which is a 25-year-old mm-hmm. book. So that's not a long time ago. But mm-hmm. that's that's how different it was not very long ago. And right. as you were talking about on a recent episode, like there are people who don't remember 9-11. Yes. You know, who were not born when 9-11 happened. And that kind of world-changing event mm-hmm. is doesn't necessarily have... And so what if there were nobody ever talked about it and there were no movies about it and no pictures of it and no annual mm-hmm. veneration and ringing that bell and those monuments in the... You know, mm-hmm. what if that happened and we just forgot that, oh, 9-11 happened. Like, it is it is important, I think, for any sort of... For those kinds of enormous changing moments, for us to remember them. And I think it's even when those moments happen in marginalized communities, mm-hmm. you know, it is it becomes maybe even more important right. that they be met, remembered and venerated, at least by the members of that community, but also in a much bigger sort of way. I would really like to see the media do a better job mm-hmm. of their coverage of it's not all fixed. Like Doma mm-hmm. was overturned and Proposition 8 was overturned. So actual laws against us being allowed to exist have mm-hmm. been stricken from the books. But that doesn't mean it's all done. I was reading today about a law in Montana. If it's not been signed into law yet, there's a there's a passel of hateful anti-trans bills going through legislatures oh all over God. the country now. Just- but Worst. this was a law, this relationship between gender and um, uh, homosexuality, gay rights and gender, this law was basically making it okay for schools to expunge from the curriculum anything that could be seen as teaching, um, containing teachings about sexuality and gender. It was basically using the gender category to try to censor any teaching of, of, of uh, that homosexuality was not disordered or not damaged. You know, like I was, I, my head right. was in a knot as I was trying to read what this law was doing. Any way in, like the bigots are now looking for any way in, any loophole. Like it's not, the wedding cakes are just the tip of the iceberg, if you'll forgive the mixed metaphor. It is any way to try to make the case that my religious beliefs will be disrespected by the law if I am not allowed to discriminate against you. It's one thing, you know, they're acting as if people are trying to force them into gay marriages, but what they're really saying is that being asked not to discriminate against a group of people who are different from me or who believe different things from me is a violation of my civil rights. That is either an escalation to a really scary place or that is the end game for anti-gay bigotry in this country, because in my opinion, it's such an absurd and untenable argument that I don't see how it can be sustained for very long, you know? But separate from what you've been talking about, you know, like that's what, but it's still happening is really the point I think that you've been making. And I think it's a, it's a point well taken. And I think I am just now arriving at the age in my forties now where I see what the younger people lecturing the older people on social media look like and sound like. I used to probably be one of those people who would issue lectures about the meaning and significance of periods in history. I didn't actually live through and had only read about (laughs) sporadically in various books, but It was um, the idea – I'll be blunt. I see a lot of open dialogue now, particularly on Twitter, about 
the racist experiences people have had uh, trying to develop projects in Hollywood and all that sort of stuff, the, the notes they've gotten that have been problematic and racist. And I think in my head of all the things I was told over the years as a gay man in publishing Absolutely. about what I could and couldn't do, you know, like what I what was not allowed. You cannot include that scene of a gay man of a masculine gay man being sexually submissive because it will frighten the women who run this imprint. That was literally something that I had been told. I'm not at that imprint currently, so I'm not impugning anybody I currently work with. But that, and that was, you just took it. You just were like, well, that's par for the course. That's you know, the world you we know, live in. I've absolutely had that yeah. experience of having, sitting with a studio executive and having them absolutely twist themselves in knots um, as I was trying to develop the script for Say Uncle, so that there was in no way would it appear that there was a gay relationship happening mm-hmm. anywhere in the vicinity of the child. Right. Yes. Like there's the, in Say Uncle, there's a, he, the uncle is raising the child and he hires a housekeeper um, to help look after the child so he can keep working and the housekeeper falls for him. Nothing Mm -hmm. actually happens between them. That's not the way the story unfolds. But in developing it as a movie script, something that never got produced, sadly, Mm -hmm. um, I spent an enormous amount of time, the largest amount of time in writing the script that I wrote um, was devoted to conversations in and around not depicting that relationship in any way. Mm -hmm. Because the idea that a child might be exposed to two men loving each other was so uh, nuclear, was such a third rail kind of option for the film that we had to go out of our way to make sure that didn't happen. I actually sat through meetings with numerous people talking to me about this, you know, at the time, like, and, and the moment it was like, I got it. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like it was like was, this is that the, was price the price of, of admission. The price of admission, that I was exactly. Saying, if you want to play with the big boys and girls, you want to be a gay with the big boys and girls. You have to make these concessions. You cannot center your story. You have to be a you have gay to, in a way right. that straight people that won't make straight people uncomfortable. Like, and, and some of it the is most really challenging. And the and the those notes were often delivered um, most harshly by gay men who had risen up in the industry because they had paid this price too. And they knew how the game was played and they told you how to do it. And they told you, you can only go this far. This is where the line is. And, you know, I guess you could always take the tack of, well, I'm just going to write whatever my heart wants. But for those of us who were actually pursuing this as a profession or, we're, or this was how we were paying the bills, that's a big sacrifice to ask us to make, you know, in those moments. It's like when yeah. you're being told what the conditions are, it's like, okay, you know, and I knew I knew the writers who had stormed out. I knew. And I knew that they never got a major publishing deal again. You know, the ones who had thrown a fit and said, well, that's it. I'm going to do it my way or the highway, or I'm going to self-publish this in a time when self-publication uh, had a real stigma and was really difficult and you couldn't get distributed. So anyway, I think that the thing that um, resonates for me with this particular special and the topic of history is... I, I don't want future generations, as you're pointing out, to think, oh, well, they were just bars, you know, and I and I say that again, qualifying that I'm not some wild nightlife person and you would be hard pressed to get me in a bar today. They were really 
the beginning of something. They were community spaces that were really vital. They were deeply flawed. They were often dangerous, but they were the only places we had to go in many instances, you know? And uh, it wasn't always that way, but I think their role in the history of the community cannot be underestimated and swept aside. And so, yeah, when you look back at the at the first generations to really step out of the closet in a very visible way in urban communities, um, keep in mind how they were able to do it. <laughs> I know that's a little muddled, I know, but you know, it's like this was the way it was. You know, this was the way it was. This is what the options right. were. And I think the other thing that it really underscores, I am not as big a fan of the bars or the sexual outlaw image that was, uh, I think, the sort of ghetto history that mm-hmm. we were subjected to, the second class status that we embraced as though that was our cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. I think that knowing about it and understanding it in its true context really really highlights how heroic it was for the people who stepped into the spotlight, who stepped to the front of the stage, who stepped outside and in the light of day Mm -hmm. and didn't just scurry around like cockroaches in the dark, but actually went out into the world and were gay openly and proudly and Mm -hmm. unpopularly and accepted maybe not as great a career path or maybe not as much of the... Those were the real heroes and those Mm -hmm. were the people who I really want to see venerated and those are the people that understanding that sort of ghettoized veneration of ghettoized second class uh, darkness that mm-hmm. most gay people were forced to accept um, to choose between that and actually succeeding in society, mm-hmm. um, you know, the staying in the closet or not. And mm-hmm. the people who actually came out when it wasn't a career move or politically expedient or something that you could write a book about or go on entertainment tonight and talk about as a way to bump up your career. Like mm-hmm. those were the people who really impressed me. And I right. think that you can't know how impressive they were until you understand how repressive it really was right. Absolutely. in the world around them. Who is one of those people? Who would you? Who comes to your mind first as one of those? Aside from yourself, because I know you well enough to know that was how you lived your life. That you were very it openly. Certainly, it certainly courageous. always was for me. I was never interested in in second class. You know, I would say that maybe Harvey Milk is the first mm-hmm. one that comes to mind because, like, running for office and being who he was, as loud and proud and out in the sunlight as he was, was probably he was very much in and of that world but he also arose from it and stepped out in in um into the light um to do that i think patricia nell warren certainly mm. did it mm-hmm. i think that um oh golly that's a really good question well and i, I only asked you for one so you've met the challenge you don't have to put better yourself... answers i should have better it's gay pride <laughs> yeah. month all month so right. i'll try and have more answers to that question as we go along but it's a really good one and it it is the point of what we're talking about mm-hmm. you know it is the thing that like oh yeah like that let's do let's actually let's actually step out and say let's say who it is that ought to be historically venerated and mm-hmm. historically remembered who was willing to uh, step out of me because it wasn't that many people Mm-mm. no it wasn't and we will have a month to talk about more of them we will also be talking about other true crime cases that have impacted uh lgbt members members of the lgbt community i should say um and until then and forever after i'm christopher rice and i'm eric shaw quinn 
And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric, who will never be recording this remotely again. (laughs) This is TDPS.